Morning. Just make sure this is up, going. Headset. Great. All right. Well, welcome. I know people are making their way in. Um, just a reminder, we have handouts available, and those um, can help you know the pacing of the class and if you want to jot stuff down. If not, I think pretty much what's on there will be on our slides this morning as well. So um, we're continuing on in this Teach Us Your Word series and um, looking forward this morning to continuing as we grow and just getting some tools in our toolbox as we consider how to better understand and not just understand intellectually, but understand to be able to be nourished by God's word. And so we'll be looking at that this morning. Um, why don't I pray, and then we will we'll get started. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to pause and to consider your word. We are amazed that you have given us such a, a rich gift, and even as we think about it this morning, um, we confess how much we take it for granted, uh, how little it can mean to us in our daily lives. We know that you know our hearts in all of this. Thank you that we come not because we've performed amazingly at studying your word, but because we've been forgiven by the blood of Christ and have welcome access to you, and that you are excited this morning for us to better understand your word. And we pray that you, by your spirit, would help us to do that this morning. So give us strength this morning as we think about these things. We pray that you would build us up. In Christ's name, amen. All right. Well, this uh, class, you may have noticed, could be called a class of acronyms because we're <laughs> kind of going through several acronyms. Really, it's just two main ones. Um, and does anyone remember an acronym that relates to meditating on the scriptures and has to do with California? Anyone remember it? TPCA, yes. So however you like to think about that, TP California, um, there's no toilet paper in California. I don't know how you like to remember that. Uh, but the more important question is, what do those <laughs> letters stand for? Does anyone know what those stand for? You can just yell them out. What's the T? Teach. P. People. Just kidding. No. What is it? Anyone? Praise. Kevin studied ahead of time, I can tell. Good job, Kevin. <laughs> Uh, to, um, so teach, what does the text teach? Praise, what else? See. Confess, yes. Yeah, we see what the text is teaching, and as we praise God for who he is, it shows uh, faults within us. It shows the, the disparity there. And then the final one is ask. So maybe helpful to see it there now that we've had a quiz. Um, but this this is just a helpful thing to remember as we come to a text of Scripture. Um, what is it saying? What can I praise God for based on what it reveals? Um, what does that stir up confession-wise in me? It brings us to him in prayer. And it, it cultivates a prayerful dependence and humility, right? Confessing and then asking, that posture of dependence. So um, that's helpful and we'll... We will circle. We're going to practice all of this today, just so you know. So I'm going to teach a little bit about analysis, and then we will practice this. So TPCA is the meditation method, and then this is the crux of the class: is this captor method, which just sounds to me like a Lego castle warfare thing. It's kind of fun, but. Um, 
content, context, sorry, which we talked about, um, Ryan has talked about the historical and literary context that we think about and study when we come to a passage. Then analysis is what we're going to begin looking at today. And then dealing with the problems that you find in the text, because uh, there are often tricky things in Scripture's text. Overarching themes, obligations, and then reflection. Um, So that's the method that we're working our way through. And today we are on analysis. Um, So we're looking at analysis. As we begin analyzing the text, so for some of you I say analysis and you get excited. Like, I love analyzing things. Others of you, you're like, if I had known this was on analysis, I would have slept in. Um, And so that's okay. We'll all get there. And these are helpful tools anyone can use, Um, especially, well, I'll, Just stay tuned. Okay. Uh, And so two types of analysis when we come to Scripture. Um, The first is narrative analysis. Broadly speaking, if you look at your whole Bible, and if we think about what it contains, now I know some of us might think of a bunch of genres right away, right? Like there's poetry and story and um, letters, Um, But if we really just kind of break it down into the most fundamental categories, it's narrative and discourse. Um, Narrative, which broadly speaking are stories, um, and when I say story, it doesn't mean they're not true, Um, but largely speaking, they're they're stories. About one-third of the Bible is narrative. A third of the Bible is written as an unfolding story. The entire Bible is an overarching narrative of creation, fall, redemption, consummation, slash recreation. Um, So narrative is the most common literary form or genre in the Bible. Uh, It has more pages than law, prophecy, letters, or visions. Um, And so I think that's really helpful to realize. Narrative comprises a ton of scripture, and so learning how to analyze it's really helpful. Um, With a few exceptions, most of the narratives are historical. They're telling us history in some form. The examples of non-historical narratives would be things like parables, where it's still a story, but often it's a a fictitious story to illustrate something. Um, And narratives describe and interpret what happened in time and space to the people who appear in the account. So it's telling us what goes on, and there are lots of reasons for that. So narrative analysis, you can see, just as I say, a third of the Bible is story. It makes sense we'd say, it's good to understand how to understand stories. The other type of analysis, which we'll look at next week, um, so this is analysis part one, but part two will be discourse. And so discourse um, includes laws, letters, prophecies, proverbs, psalms, speeches, prayers, visions uh, that you see in apocalyptic things. So um, we'll look at how to break those things down next week. But today we get to talk about one of my favorite topics, which is narrative analysis. And I'll try and just contain myself, my excitement, and the content so we can actually practice it. So if when we come to one-third of the Bible, that's story, how do we understand what's going on? Is it just get to the end of it so you can move on to the next story? Um, It's helpful to realize there are three types of stories, three types of narrative that we find in Scripture. So first thing is saying, what kind of story is this? What's going on? So learning to recognize it. The first um, 
me just look in your handout. Yep, you have them printed there on page two. The first type is a report, a report. So as you think through scripture, um, you'll find these brief records of events, um, especially of things like battles. You find those a lot in Old Testament historical narrative. For example, David's defeat of the Ammonites, 2 Samuel 10. It's just kind of like, here's what happened. And it's narrative, but it's mostly just a report. Here are the details that you need to know. We also find those of things like building projects, right? Solomon's temple and his palace, 1 Kings 6 through 9. So you have report after report happening um, in these passages. Reports also describe dreams. They describe the reigns of kings. They They present facts or simple events. And part of what you notice is they, um, they usually lack dramatic tension. We're all feeling dramatic tension right now as we hear a voice coming from the heavens. But uh, reports don't have that, right? It would just say, and there was noise up there. Um, so now here's the thing to know about reports. When we come to them in Scripture, they're telling us information. The information and the presentation of it itself may not be riveting, right? It's usually not a riveting story. It's kind of like, and there was a lot of gold and wood in the palace. Um, but when we start to compare reports with one another, they, they give us helpful information. For example, you, you read the reports of Solomon's building projects, and you think, what in the world are they even talking about? But then what happens is, as you zoom out and look at the reports, you'll notice that he spent more time and money on his palace than he spent on the temple. And see, the reports are telling us something important, um, but sometimes you have to look at them like an Excel sheet and compare them with other reports. So again, some of you may be excited about reports. Others of you um, may read through them quickly. Another type of narrative are speech stories. So speech stories, they primarily report someone's speech. So it's a story, right? Like Paul comes into this situation, he's talking to so-and-so, but most of it is actually the recording of his speech. So it's a story in a historical setting. Um, You have Moses talking to Pharaoh, but then you have lengthy speeches, Solomon's speech and prayer, the sermons of uh, Peter and Paul that we find. And so they have the elements of a story, but they focus mainly on what is said. When you come to a speech story, Um, part of what you want to keep in mind is why is the speaker giving this speech? Why does he say these words to these people at this time? And so it kind of then shifts a little bit into discourse analysis, which we'll talk about more next week, but these tools flow um, hand in hand together. So I see in this story, there's a big speech here. I'm going to want to think about why is he saying this, uh, he or she saying this right now. And then the category that we probably mostly think of are just straight-up dramas, right? Dramas in Scripture, they're the longest and most complex type of narrative. So they have these different aspects that we're going to look at. Um, and now we're really going to focus on how to understand them. By the way, there are these, I found this website with just these amazing paintings of um, scriptural scenes. And so here you have Ruth and Naomi and Orpah. Um, just super cool reminder of an, one of the most amazing narratives in Scripture. Scripture has the most amazing stories once you understand how to understand them. 
All right, everyone doing okay so far? So there are types of stories. We say, which kind is it? Oh, this one has a riveting plot. Where do I go with that? Well, it's good to understand the phases of a story. Now, some of you may be saying, wait a minute, I didn't think we were in English 101 or Literature 101, right? Feels like that. Um, It's kind of an amazing thing to think about. Which came first, English class or the Bible? Uh, Which came first, literary analysis or God's unfolding story? It's kind of fascinating, isn't it? God revealed himself and interacts in story with people, and therefore we notice story in the world. Um, I just think it's a fascinating thing. We could talk about that forever. But um, the flow of stories, the reason it works is because this is how God made it work. It's just a fascinating thing. It's not just because we're imposing English class on the Bible or something. And so you probably know this general arc of stories, or you've experienced it in some way. They begin by setting the stage, and you meet the... This is where I wish all Disney movies would stop. Like any movie, I wish it could just stay here, and we wouldn't have to do all that, and then I wouldn't get so... um, uptight about all of it. But those don't make for very good stories. Uh, So anyhow, stories continue and conflict happens and that builds to a crisis. And then there's a resolution somehow of the crisis taking place. And then there's this resolution and following actions that come. Now, as we look at this, one thing that's helpful to know is Don't freak out if you can't clearly delineate, oh, now we stop talking about characters and now we're into conflict. These things can overlap, but what's important is to notice that they're happening and to find out what's the significance of what's taking place. Um, And so we have those phases. We'll look at how to kind of um, illustrate those. And then the last thing, just by way of kind of tools to have in mind before we get to some um, tips for reading narrative are the categories of drama, Um, the categories. And so most of the time this, well, it's gone because I switched it, but that whole conflict and resolution arc falls into a particular box of what's seeking to be achieved. And so a quest, a test, or a choice And again, these things can overlap. But when we think of a quest, the main character is pursuing a goal, right? And you can have, you think of movies this way, right? Most of the movie is just trying to get to this thing. And does the character accomplish the quest or not? Abraham's journey. So you look at the Abraham narrative in Genesis. It's largely a quest for the promised blessing of an heir. How is Abraham going to get offspring. And it's this quest pursuit that's happening. We see this over and over again in the Gospels, right? Um, A sinful woman and sinful Zacchaeus, they go on these quests to interact with Jesus. And what's going to happen? What's the result of their quest? Do they make it? And what happens? uh, Another type is a test. In a test, events usually try or probe the mental moral or spiritual character of the story's hero, right? So you have your main character, and then these things keep happening in the character's life that are showing who this person is and pushing that person on a particular trajectory. For example, one of the most iconic tests in scripture uh, could be David's combat with Goliath. It's this huge test 
of David's fitness to be king. Now we know there's this overarching um, God's role in the whole thing. But as far as looking at David as a character and looking at his narrative arc, this is a huge test of how he would be able to perform as a king, especially in contrast to Saul. Can you think of any other, uh, can you think of a test in the New Testament that's pretty iconic when you think about the life of Jesus? Yeah, Kevin. Yeah, wilderness temptation, right? And even Gethsemane. Um, Those are very test-structured narratives. And then finally, a choice. So obviously in narratives, choices are happening all the time. Um, But in a choice, the main character or the characters, they have to decide between two courses of action. I mean, one of the choice scenes that we just saw up here is um, Ruth and Orpah as they're interacting with Naomi. Which way is this going to go? What are they going to choose? If we think back to David's life, He has to make this choice. Is he going to avenge himself on Saul or is he going to continue to honor Saul's position as the anointed one of God? And that that choice happens in these climactic ways a few times in David's narrative. So these are just helpful buckets or or, um, pictures on a wall and you pick which uh, category the scene is. Is it a quest? Is it a test? Is it a choice? Now, Stories can contain one or all of these elements. It's not like, oh no, I didn't figure out if it's a test, quest, or choice. Now I can't understand it. Um, These things are overlapping sometimes. All right. So let's just talk about some hints for reading narratives, and then we'll take a look at a passage together. When we look at narratives, one thing to keep in mind is look at the climax and resolution For the main point. If you're wondering what's the main point of this story, which is something we should be asking, right? When we come to a story, what's the main point? What are we um, trying to learn? It's usually disclosed in both what the climax is bringing out, like this tension that's there, and the solution to the tension. It's usually showing us something about why that story, like what it's trying to teach us. And then sometimes there's in the resolution a statement that even tells you what was going on there. Jesus does this, fortunately for us, um, multiple times. So when you're looking at it and you see all these like details and all this kind of stuff going on, and if you look at an arc that's multiple chapters, you can step back and say, wait a minute, where's that really, where's kind of the tip of that? Let's start there in discerning what's meant by it. Another hint is to be on the lookout for three types of characters. Three types of characters. Um, The believer, the unbeliever, and the neutral party or spectator or observer. You can call it, um, some would say, no neutrality. So whatever, but observer (laughs) who's uh, trying to figure out these things. Um, Now this, you know, who we're on the lookout for that's going to change a little bit of what these characters look like, whether we're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, right? Um, But in the Old Testament, you're finding faithful who are oriented around God's promises, even though tragically flawed, right? But like, okay, they're, they're choosing the path toward God. And then you have others who are opposed to the ways of God, whether they are within Israel or outside of Israel. Um, And then sometimes there are neutral parties who are just kind of observing there. 
when we come into the New Testament, we see this over and over again in the Gospels, right? You see um, people who are coming to Jesus and then their faith is affirmed or somehow in Jesus' interaction with them, it shows their response toward him. Who are the classic like unbeliever categories when we're in the gospel accounts? Who are some of the people that fall into that? Any thoughts? Yeah, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, they're typically playing this kind of unbeliever outsider role. Um, skeptics, things like that. And then you have often like the crowds, they're coming just like, huh, this is interesting. And um, the way they're supposed to respond to it has its own implications as well. So again, as you're looking at a story, say, now, wait a minute, who does this person, what, what category does this person most fall into? And again, because we're people, we don't all clearly fall into that perfectly. And a lot of times the people are on a journey um, which is also really encouraging. The other thing is look through the eyes of the main characters. I think this is one thing that um, when it comes to biblical narrative and in particular like Hebrew narrative um, is different from us. Some of you may have read classic stories where there is page upon page upon page of background and inner thoughts and descriptions of the character. I mean, and you're like, can we get to, can, are they going to say something ever, <laughs> you know? Um, Hebrew narrative is so different, so much more sparse with its words, and it often doesn't tell us things about the characters. When it tells us something, it's hugely significant. Um, and so take note of that, because for us it's like, oh, he was tall? whatever. Oh, headlong hair. That's weird. I wonder what else. And then, oh, you got caught by your hair in a tree. That was actually really significant. Oh, Samson, that's interesting. Um, and so every time a detail about the character is there, we should pay attention to it. But then the other aspect of this is what, what the narrative wants you to do is to get inside the character and look out at the world through their eyes and notice who they are by um, what they say and what they do. I'm kind of bleeding into the next point, so I'll, I'll rein that one back in. But we tend to just pick a hero like Abraham, Moses, or David, and we just kind of identify with them. Um, a more helpful way to do this is evaluating the morality and the faithfulness of all the characters in the story, especially from the lens of each character. So what's it like to be Abigail, not only David in the story, and what's her perspective in it, and what's going on um, from her vantage point? And then the last one, which I was kind of getting at already, is listen to what the dialogue shows you. Again, it, the text won't say he was envious or she was generous. Instead, what they say and what they do is going to help us form who this person is. And that can be uncomfortable for us. A lot of times we just want, can you just tell me, is this person good or bad? <laughs> uh, and the Bible makes us do our own work and evaluate it based on what we know from all of Scripture. All right. That's a lot of information, I think. Um, but I'd like to pause do you have any questions about any of the things I've shared? And then just to broadcast where we're going, which you can see on your handout, for the rest of the class, 
we're going to look at this passage and then we're going to just do what we've talked about. But before we do that, any questions? And Caleb has the mic and um, questions or even it can be input of things you found helpful with studying narratives. While you're thinking, I'm going to shut this door. Narrative tension is what this is really building. Will he come back? Ah, I had a quote there. I said it. Cool. Yeah, Kevin? Caleb's coming with the mic. Just hang on one sec. Um, last week, uh, I think it was Ryan, he, he was speaking about Jesus' response to um, the disciples when they said, increase our faith. Mm-hmm. And it felt to me like, like a twist in the plot suddenly. We think about them one way, mm-hmm. but his response is unexpected to us. So it kind of, um, that in itself was sort of narrative tension yeah. to me. Uh, because, uh, and it makes the, makes the whole passage more interesting when we get inside their head and think, well, why did they ask this? Um, and why did he respond in the way that he did? Why yeah. didn't he affirm them? So um, I'm trying to figure out if this is a question or just um, a response or an analysis. Yeah, or a test, a quest, or a choice. Yeah. Sorry. Go Maybe ahead. it was. <laughs> so. No, that, that's a great point. Of um, Part of reading narrative is realizing people could say good words, Right. But then you're looking at the arc of the story and then especially how another character responds to those words and that's going to give you insight into what was behind those words. And that is, that's analyzing what's said, but it's, narrative, it's analyzing it using the tools of narrative to help us understand that. Yeah. Good. That's great. Anyone else? Cool. Well, let's practice it. Because, yeah, we can talk about theory, but then I know even when I'm like studying this and, and hearing it, I just think, uh, okay. Um, but when I open my Bible tomorrow, what does this have to do with anything? And so to do this, I invite you to take a look at Luke 5. Um, Luke 5. Now, I know we're just jumping into a gospel. Um, the Gospel of Luke, we can talk some about the context overall. It's printed there in your handout, which is fine if you'd like to to use that there. And one thing that's nice about that is if you are scared to write in your Bible, not for superstitious reasons, but perfectionistic tendencies or something of the sort, uh, you can just write it on this piece of paper and then throw it out. Or perfect it and then transpose it onto once you've mastered calligraphy or something. How are we doing? Everyone (laughs) with me? (laughs) Okay. The the cool thing about opening your Bible is you could just quickly kind of see the context of Luke as we're diving into Luke um, 5. But Jesus' birth being foretold, you have this amazing text of these prophecies that are coming. Mary's Magnificat that's talking about what the Messiah will be and do. Zechariah giving prophecy of these fulfillment aspects of that. Jesus is born. It's this amazing um, angel 
attestation to that. Jesus is presented at the temple. We see these faithful who have been waiting, waiting, waiting. And then um, Jesus grows up. John the Baptist is preparing a way in chapter 3. As we come to chapter 4, we've had this big test, the temptation of Jesus, right? And now as we start to get into the context, the more immediate context of chapter 5, one of the things that we find is Jesus has given a summary statement about his ministry in Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he gave the scroll back, sat down and said, Today, scripture has been fulfilled, fulfilled, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So what Isaiah has foretold, it is now being fulfilled, is what's kind of setting the stage for that. And then as you look ahead, you, you notice um, Jesus then begins doing healings. He heals many and calls the disciples. And then as we come immediately before verse 17, Jesus cleanses a leper. And so a leper who's completely outside of society, unclean, you wouldn't touch this person. For some reason, he comes to Jesus, and then Jesus, most amazingly, reaches out and touches the unclean, and through him, he doesn't become contaminated. Instead, the leper becomes holy in that sense. And so uh, this, this flipping of the temple dynamic is already happening, showing something amazing is taking place with Jesus, but we're not, you know, as the observers, you're not totally sure um, what all that means. And so that's just some of the context. You know, you could look into lots of things, but that's just high-level context as we come now to this account of um, the paralytic and his friends. And so let's look at the passage together. Um, in your handout, you notice I underlined a verse. That was in my notes, and then I didn't realize when I copied and pasted it, I left it underlined there. So there you go, free underlining. Uh, Luke 5, starting in verse 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, Because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. should just let it like hang there for a minute, right? I mean, this is, where are we in the ark? Very top, teetering over the edge, like what is going to happen? And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he, what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. 
And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. So there's the narrative. And isn't it even just interesting just slowing down and just, I I didn't read it super slowly, but even just kind of as the slides forced us to go a little bit slower, I think you can start to feel some of these pieces. One of the biggest obstacles to reading biblical narrative is familiarity, right? That's our biggest problem. Oh, I've heard the story. He's going to get up and walk at the end. What's next? Um, Which, wait a minute, we just heard. When you stop and think about it, you're like, this is mind-blowing what just took place there. And so if we learn to just slow down and sit as though we are hearing it and really seeing it in our minds for the first time, um, that's most of the battle of narrative analysis. So let's work this, let's just work through together what we've... um, been talking about. And so here's what I'm going to do. We're going to walk through each of these beautifully colored circles together and just observe these things. And I want to open it up to hear from you. And um, so yeah, we'll keep Caleb busy. And don't think it has to be the most profound answer in the world. I just have a few requirements. One, speak into the mic so people at home can hear and we can all hear. Two, Try your best to make sure it pertains to the circle we're talking about. Like, don't jump ahead to the resolution when I'm still asking what's happening. <laughs> so try. We'll, we're, we'll be gracious, though. Um, and then, yeah, I'd love to hear from people. So if, if you've sat here and said, I think I'll never talk in this class, um, this is one where no answer is a wrong answer. Um, Watch, I'll try and turn it into a right answer. Like, it can be a test. Like, it's fun. It's a test, a quest for you, and a choice, and we'll just see how it goes, okay? So, um, number one, oh, backwards goes backwards. Setting the stage. Okay, so as you look at these opening verses, tell me anything about setting the stage of what's taking place that you see there. And I know it will be clunky because we want Caleb to have the mic, but who's going to start us off? What brave soul will start us on this quest? Ted, thank you. Um, I guess we know he's Jesus is teaching in a house with a large group of people, and it includes a bunch of Pharisees and teachers of the law from all over. Yeah, that's great. So, Those are significant things, right? Jesus is in a house. Now, normally, someone teaching in a house, how do we feel about that? Ah, that's a nice, intimate, friendly setting. Like, that's a good thing, right? Then we find these details in it that are like, hmm, house is super crowded. That changes how that's going to feel, right? Oh, interesting people are there. Pharisees and teachers of the law or scribes, just depending how we're translating that there. Um, anything else you notice in just setting the stage? It's, it's daytime. Yeah, it's daytime. It's not the middle of the night. Um, they're in a house. They're not on a boat. Like daytime happening there should be a nice friendly thing. Anything else? I mean, that's covering a lot of it, but yeah, Darcy. This is great. I love hearing... I'm not, I'm not sure if you said this, Ted, so if I repeat, sorry. We'll see. But um, it, it looks like they're coming from all over, so like yeah. all different villages. Did you say that? He, I stopped listening after. The, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 
See, it's the struggle of a narrative and of uh, class participation. It's okay. No, she's highlighting. Yeah, that's a very important detail, though. And notice, if we're thinking biblical narrative tends towards being sparse with words, right? Because that's a pain to write on a scroll and people are listening. Notice it doesn't just say, they're from all over. It says, every village of Galilee, Judea, and from Jerusalem. And it's connected right there to the religious leaders being from those places, which is interesting. But I think if you look at it, it's... It's highlighting that people are coming from everywhere as well, but especially religious leader contingents are coming. Um, we'll talk about that in characters. Okay, so let's move on then to, the, that's a great setting the stage of what's taking place. Daytime at a house, super crowded though. That's interesting. All right, who are the characters? Um, Ted has mentioned religious teachers and Darcy has re-mentioned that they're from everywhere. Um, who else is in this story? Someone on this side. No, it can be anywhere. Did I see a hand? Oh, cool. A paralyzed man. Yes. A paralyzed man is a character in this story, right? He actually does amazing things, even though he doesn't speak, which is interesting. Who else? Jesus. Jesus is in the story. Yes, he is. He says some major things. Now, I know someone over here knows who else is in the story. Dave, thank you. Some random men. Yeah, who are connected to, uh, do you mean the friends of the paralyzed? Yeah, yeah. We don't know their names. We don't know anything, but they're... uh, they are um, construction workers, we can tell. They know how to disassemble a roof. Um, <laughs> so they're industrious, right? But they're major characters in this story, right? Yeah, and then John? Oh, you do, though. We can't hear you. You know what you see on, 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 on a lot of programs and you hear a lot of people thinking they're tearing apart this roof? Yeah. But didn't they have roofs that were open they had a door to go up there in the cool of the evening that was kind of typical of the way they build them, right? Yes. Like, uh, here's um, If we think about the roof construction, it's not like um, a, a dome where you can retract the roof or something like that. But um, if you think of that day and age, houses w- would often get hot and didn't have the breeze and all that kind of stuff. So almost every house had an outside way of accessing the roof, whether that was a staircase or a ladder. And people would go up on the roof and do things like laundry or just cool down and have dinner up there or sleep up there because it's just too oppressively hot in the house. Um, and so roofs were incredibly accessible and flat but they were sealed <laughs> because it rained. And so an interesting detail about this, too, is, you know, usually the construction of them is you have beams and then you have thatch and it's um, sealed in some way with durable material. There's also tile construction that can be in addition to that. And notice that that's what's happening here in verse 19. Luke gives us that detail. Um, went up on the roof, so coming up outside, and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And so part of their deconstruction of this roof, which is definitely happening, um, is this one had tiles in addition to what was below it. Um, so 
they obviously had a screwdriver and some things like that. No, but uh, major. Notice in how it's described, it is a major deconstruction effort. Um, let me just see if we covered all the characters: Pharisees, teachers of the law. Ah, there are other people in the house, right? There's a crowd element there too. Um, and so they talk at the end, paralytic Jesus, um, and it also does talk about the power of the Lord being um, present in this, but we could say. Okay, now how would you classify these characters? Remember the classification, believers, unbelievers, and spectators? Any thoughts of who would fit into any of those categories? And, uh, yeah, and then, um, anyhow, go ahead, Kevin. Definitely the four men and the paralyzed man are believers. Yeah, yeah, we see, we see that affirmed throughout this narrative, this element of belief. Piper, and then, go ahead. Um, the Pharisees are like non-believers, or, and then the people are spectators. Yeah, there you go. You took two answers, but that's okay. Cindy, did you have any others? Okay. Piper took them all. No, it's great. I appreciate your uh, ambition. No, that's great. So we have the paralytic and his friends. And we may say, now, wait a minute, it is the paralytic. We'll talk more about that, uh, the paralyzed man. Um, in this more believer category, we see this faith that's setting them out. And then um, we see the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, does it say they didn't believe Jesus? They thought he was dumb. No. How is it revealed their animosity? It's revealed by what they say. Who is this man? Um, and so it's showing us their character in it. And then we, um, as is typical, the crowd is functioning in this kind of more spectator-observer way. And um, we'll talk more about quest, test, choice, all that kind of stuff. Okay, let's get to the juicy stuff, the conflict. It's not really juicy in the story. But um, I just want us to picture the con- conflict for a moment. So... Jesus is teaching, and this has been happening now in Luke's account, and as he does, it's growing and growing acclaim. Like, this is a surprising thing. And so he's in this house, and these friends of a paralytic say, we need to get our friend into the presence of Jesus. That's what their heart is set on. What is the conflict? There are too many stinking people in the house. <laughs> we can't get in there. That's, that's where this is um, building. And it, it really, as we think about that conflict, it then morphs into, okay, how are we going to make this happen? We're going to tear a hole in the roof. And that's, I mean, it raises so many questions, doesn't it? I just think, okay, Jesus is speaking and teaching, how much did he interact with the roof noise that's taking place? This was not a quiet thing. This was a major disruption thing. Um, how did all that work down? But we need to put ourselves there and realize this took a while to do. You're not going to blast through a roof that has tiles on it and stuff underneath in just like a minute. It's going to take you some time. And it's going to create tension, right? What in the world is happening? And then light comes through the roof, right? Stacy mentioned it's daytime. All of a sudden, light is coming through. And then what also is happening in the conflict for you? Where's the owner of this place? And he's sitting here like, 
why are you tearing a hole in my roof? Like, did he run upstairs and be like, what is going on? It might have happened. We don't know. But there's this crazy amount of tension and conflict. And then what happens? A man is lowered down on a mat by his friends. Um, And just the effort that that takes, right? And if you have ropes and you're trying not to tip the thing, um, it's, it's just amazing. So as we think about the story, all eyes then converge on this man who has been lowered down, who's now in the middle of the room, and then Jesus is there. And so if we think about the conflict, we have the problem is a crowd's blocking the way. The conflict is this plan they come up with and the man coming in. And then um, Jesus begins to escalate this really in the climax part of it. So, and again, do you see how it's kind of fuzzy? Like, do I flip the slide now into climax with Jesus' words, or where do we put them? It doesn't matter. We all know we're doing this, right? We all know this is building as we're hearing this story. And so if we think about the crisis, um, well, let, let's talk about it a little. What are aspects of the crisis that's happening here? What would you say as you look at this? And Again, this is an area where I think that it's it's porous in terms of of where we put it. But yeah, what are, what's part of the crisis? Kevin, let's just give someone else a chance just for a sec, and then we'll get back to you. Yeah, Hannah. I feel like in this case, the crisis is more from the Pharisees' perspective to mm. see this man forgiving sins and just wondering what is this guy doing? Like yeah. he's not allowed to do that. So I feel like it's more crisis on their end probably than anyone else's yeah that's a that's a great uh technique is you put yourself in the eyes of these religious leaders and what do you have going on here you showed up as the um, standard keepers for religion among god's people and now ding 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 alarm bells are going off we've got a blasphemer on our hands and they're like in their earpieces being like are you going to take him out or am i like what are we going to do about this this is a major crisis for them um, this man is interfering with everything they believe, basically. So that's a great point. Yeah, Kevin. Um, the part that you underlined here, yeah. the power of the Lord was with him <laughs> to heal, yeah. makes me think that he was actually doing some healings while he was teaching and not just like foreshadowing this big thing that was going to happen. And maybe they were already starting to sort of accept that, yeah, this guy can, he has some amazing power. But like Hannah said, the real, um, the real blast in their face came when he said, your sins are forgiven. Yeah. No, I think that's great. Um, <laughs> uh, I, as I'm looking at it, I'm like, why did I underline that in the first place? <laughs> no, I, there are reasons. Um, some of that, too, is just contextual. Um, the, that phrase is used only, well, where it's used in the Old Testament is Exodus 12, where there's this summary statement of God's power showing up after 430 years to liberate his people from captivity. And so there's, and, and Luke is very attuned to Old Testament echoes and allusions. And so part of what's happening, um, you have contextually Jesus has been doing healings, and that's why there's such a crowd here. 
Um, people have heard about this. So what you're saying is right, Kevin. News is spreading of Jesus' healing ability. Then Luke is also signaling this is by the power of God fulfilling this spirit-ordained role that's reaccomplishing, well, that's, that's recapitulating the exodus. The new exodus has arrived, and I'm going to show you how is kind of some of what's going on there uh, in that phrase. And so all of that is building into this conflict and crisis that's taking place. Uh, is Jesus really who was foretold who would come uh, is definitely part of, of that, and the healing's a part of that as well. I, we're, we're getting at something that's really a key part of the, the crisis, right? Jesus flips the script. Like, think about this. A man comes down who's obviously in need of healing. Luke has already told us Jesus has been doing healings, has the power to heal. People are noticing that. What do we expect Jesus to do? Heal the man, right? And But we just gloss over these words, sort of. But this is just what's so jarring to us. When he, verse 20, when he saw their faith, so this is the first time faith is being mentioned even in, in Luke's narrative. He said, man, your sins are forgiven you. What in the world are you doing, Jesus? And now this is where, um, as Hannah was saying, and and we've been talking about, this is where the crisis goes through the roof because this puts him apart from being just some prophetic healer to someone. The Pharisees and scribes are accurately diagnosing this man is claiming to do something only God can say he can do. Now you may say, wait a minute, we forgive people all the time. We forgive people when they sin against us, right? Has Jesus ever met this man before? No. Has this man ever sinned against Jesus as a person in this earth? <laughs> no. How, like, what is Jesus talking about? Jesus is talking about this man has sinned against God, and Jesus is God in the flesh. And Jesus is coming to actually deal with this problem of forgiveness. And it's amazing, too, Jesus is showing this amazing awareness of this man's life is when he says, your sins are forgiven. He's implying, slash stating, he knows the sins this man has committed. It's just an amazing thing. The sins this man has committed against God and against others, which is just absolutely fascinating. And so that's where the um, crisis really kind of builds to a climax is then the, the Pharisees are really upset, right? And they're saying, who is this in verse 21 who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus answers them, why do you question in your hearts? So again, spirit helping him to discern the hearts of the people in front of him. And he then says, and he just raises the stakes, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk. And um, what he's doing there is showing, I could do this outward thing. Like anyone could say your sins are forgiven you. They'll be in trouble for blasphemy. But I can say it and it's true, and I'll show you that it's true because I can also heal this man. Um, And so he's tying those things all together. And then he tells exactly what he's doing. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I am going to have this man stand up and be healed so that you can know I have this authority for the harder thing, which is to forgive sins. Um, and so that's how it all gets there. And that, so that's really the pinnacle of the crisis, right? He says these words then, get up. And it's, you could 
hear a pin drop in that house, I'm sure, right? Can you imagine Jesus says that? And then, again, picture it. We all know the man gets up, right? But picture a man who hasn't moved ever in his life starting to move. Like, that, that's just an amazing thing. Talk about, like, climax and resolution of the climax that's happening because it goes on and it says, immediately he stood up in front of them. Somehow his muscles and his nerves and his brain, all of that fires. And this man stands and um, walks. And then he takes up his mat. <laughs> um, if you've ever injured a part of your body and know how quickly it atrophies, I mean, this is just such supernatural healing and restoration. Um, and again, I said, who's never walked. Maybe he had walked before and then became paralyzed. That's highly likely. Whatever it is, uh, it's an amazing um, situation in this resolution. And so in the resolution, what do we find out has happened? Jesus not only has the power to heal, but Jesus has just completely upped the ante on the whole thing. And he says, I have come to do something that's not even on your radar, actually, but is actually at the heart of your greatest need, which is to forgive sins. And I've come and I can do that, and I can also heal. And so then we come to, um, you know, the resolution really is the man stands up and picks up his mat and walks, and we all just breathe a sigh of relief on the one hand, right? Because this standoff, um, Jesus has come out victorious, and the friend's goal has been accomplished. And then there are following actions, though. What is the crowd's, I'll I'll open it up for questions again, Um, or not questions, I will question you. What's the crowd's response? What's good about it and what's lacking? Anyone? I know that might be a tricky, it's verse 26. Yeah, Caleb, you can... Well, what's good about it is that they're recognizing that Jesus is extraordinary. Yeah. What's bad about it is that they're not believing in him. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. Like, we look at the response, and amazement sees them all. I mean, just overcome with wonder, right? And they glorified God. That's great. They saw that this is an act of God. They were filled with awe. Again, good. Then you come to their dialogue, though. And if we put ourselves in their situation... And we say, what would be the best response for them? It would be, surely this man can forgive sins. Like, God is truly among us. God with us has come to be. What Zechariah and Mary were prophesying is happening among us. But instead they say, we have seen extraordinary things today. And so what we, what we see is that they're not there yet. And that people can see the wonders of God doing things. And yet it not bring them to eliciting faith in who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Now, that can be a process and progress, but we just need to see that's where that is um, right now in their response. Okay, so just in light of time, okay, let's just think for a moment of this. Test, quest, choice. Doesn't that sound fun? What's going on in this story? And I'll I'll tell you um, a secret. All three are there. Who's doing what? Who's on a quest? 
I see people mouthing it, so rather than make Caleb run around, friends. The friends are on a quest. Very good. Thank you for, yes. The friends are on a quest, right? We need to get this man to Jesus, which Jesus affirms is an act of faith. They, they believe Jesus can bring healing to this man. They're coming to him in faith, which is amazing. And from Jesus' response, your faith, and that's in the plural, and then he heals and he says to the man, your sins are forgiven. What we're to assume and connect in this then is the paralytic man, paralyzed man is not being dragged against his will, but that he also wants this as well and his friends are helping him achieve this. So he's on the, they're on this beautiful quest. It's just amazing. Who's being tested? You all are. Just kidding. Just mouth the words and I'll... Uh, Jesus. Good. Jesus is being tested, right, by the Pharisees. Um, And then who has a choice? It's really the Pharisees and scribes and the crowds, right? They're coming from different postures. Pharisees and scribes being more antagonistic at this point. The crowds, are we going to see what's going on Um, truly here with Jesus? Will they act upon the evidence before them for Christ's true identity? Or will they just say, that's amazing, or will they fight it um, to the death? So that's some of what's happening. Great job, everyone. Let's then do this as we, so that's that's all analysis, right? And do you see how rich and edifying even that can be? But I think as people whose brains can be disconnected from our hearts somehow, we can walk away and be like, that was very cool factual things about that. Um, I now have pictured a roof being torn apart. That's great. But we do need to take it, like where can scripture actually take us? We've really just been saying, what does this teach? But then if we just keep going, the Lord can use it so much in our hearts. What is there that we can praise God for in this passage? And it's not a a rhetorical question. Caleb has stood. (laughs) Anything that's praiseworthy about God? Yeah, John. Yeah, his power. His power. And then let's just parse that out for a minute. And I know, or Cindy, you didn't get a chance earlier. Caleb, Cindy's tucked up under the, yeah. I was just going to say something we could praise God for is that he Jesus cared and he was willing to be interrupted for his whatever his like teaching plan or lesson plan was. He was totally willing to be interrupted for this one man. Completely sidelines. uh, Yes, his teaching plan, his slides, like took a detour. And it was all about this person and the person's friends. and he puts himself out there in an amazing way, right? Um, so we see Jesus care, um, and we can praise God for that. That same care is um, toward us as those who come to Jesus. And be, for the sake of time, I, I'll just say a few things about this. Also, what's praiseworthy about this is we see that Jesus takes it from the ask that came to him, which was a true and legitimate need, but he took it to the greatest need that the man actually had. 
And then in taking it to that, the forgiveness of sins, he communicates so much about his, his care, his willingness to be interrupted. He communicates about his knowledge of the situation. He says to the man, your sins, plural, like he's being very specific. And in it, Jesus is aware that he has come to deal with every particular sin that this person has um, committed in his life. I was reading one commentator about it, and, and it said, he said this most amazing thing, our particular sins are one of the most intimate things about us. One of the most, one of the things that's also so unique about us, our particular sin cocktail, as it were, of what we have committed, what we have done, what we struggle with. And Jesus enters right into that in this paralyzed man. The ask was for physical healing. The response was for what he needed most. But the rest of the connection is Jesus didn't come just to deal with what's needed most, which is forgiveness of sins. He came for the mission that has always been God's mission toward his people, the restoration of shalom, which comes through forgiveness of sins, but brings healing and wholeness. And his healing of this man and his body being raised up was foreshadowing the ultimate raising and glory that Jesus had come to bring for each one of us. And it's fascinating to realize, I don't know if it's taking it too allegorical to go here, but Jesus in doing this, it's such a perfect picture of what happens to us. We bring our needs to Jesus, right? And he knows what our deepest need actually is. And on the cross, he dealt with that deepest need. But it also promises that one day every need and every lack of the wholeness and shalom of both body and soul will be addressed by Jesus. He came to bring it all. And for us, it's in stages, just like it was with this man. Our stage is a bit longer. It isn't your sins are forgiven and then our bodies are immediately healed. But it's happening, it's coming. And it's just such a beautiful thing as we think about what our passage is this morning right, in Romans 8, what Ryan's going to be preaching on, that God's plan for salvation was to bring restoration of all things, that even creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and be freed to glorify and worship God like it was made to do. And we are a key part of that plan, and you get a glimpse of that in what Jesus does for this man. And if Jesus did it for this man because his friends blasted a hole through the roof, How much more will he do it for us when we come to him in dependent asking? This is what I need. We can know he will address the deepest and truest need, even if it's different from what we initially bring to him. And then we can know that everything we truly need will be addressed by him and has been through the work of, through his work on the cross. And one day it will be brought to fulfillment. I think that's praiseworthy, right? That's praiseworthy. What can we confess? A lot of times we don't believe that. We doubt it. Or we think because the thing we asked for hasn't turned out the way we want it, that he doesn't care at all or he's not listening or we haven't made a big enough scene. Maybe those are things we can confess. And what do we ask for? We ask for what is lacking in the shalom in our life and we ask for Jesus to make us whole in the midst of it. And we bring to him in particular those sins and the, the deepest need that we have, which is that inward renewal, even while outwardly we're wasting away. And he's at work doing all those things. So um, I find that rich. 
Uh, and, and that's moving from teaching into some of these other aspects to just see the wonder of Jesus' love, not only for this man and his friends, but his posture of love and concern for you right now in whatever you may be needing. You also see the, the beauty of, you know, sometimes we can't even bring those needs to Jesus like we need to, but we can bear those needs for others and help bring them. I do think that's a very beautiful aspect of this as well. So we could go on and on. Um, Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, the richness and beauty of it. We pray that you continue to encourage us in it as you show us your heart for us, especially in the person and work of Jesus. Thank you um, that we will hear your word preached in a few moments, and we pray that your spirit would work powerfully to use it to make us more like Jesus. Encourage us, convict us, strengthen us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.